Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and can be found on page 1021 in your pew Bible or on the screen above. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is God's word. Please remain standing for the next hymn found on page number 539. invite you to find your Bibles once again and turn uh, with me to 1 John chapter 1. Let's pray as we uh, look together at God's Word. Lord, what a special privilege it is to be able to open this book before us with confidence that you are speaking to us, your children. Lord, we recognize that your Word is not futile. It is not hollow or empty. It is not small talk. It is the very word of life. And so as we look into your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what you have to say, that your spirit would open our eyes, would open our hearts. Lord, meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the best windows into your own heart, into understanding who you truly are, and sometimes even into the hearts of others, is to ask yourself a very simple question. Is there a difference between what I say and what I actually do? It could be a very painful question sometimes when we actually stop and think about it, uh, but does my life actually match my words? Uh, if not then who I am on the outside may not actually be a true representation of who I truly am on the inside. For instance, if I say that uh, I can take out any of you in ping pong downstairs afterwards, I'd better be able to put my paddle where my mouth is. Otherwise, you're going to know that I'm lying to myself and to all of you about my mad ping pong skills. And as the high school students experienced a few weeks ago, that is in fact a lie. Uh, I am not very good at that. If I say that I'm a Patriots fan, but I've never seen a game, I don't know who any of the players are, I don't know how the game works, well then if I stop and, and look at the difference between my words, what I tell people, and then my actions, what I actually do, then I'll know that I'm simply pretending. I'm trying to fit in or something. And if you look at the difference between my words and my actions, you'll probably be able to figure that out as well. Though I do actually like the Patriots and did watch the game and so on. If I say that I know God, that I have fellowship with 
the Father. He is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Spirit is my helper. If I say that, then how I live ought to reflect the truth of that statement. I ought to live like a Christian. I ought to honor God in what I think and how I speak, to serve him, to love others, to trust and treasure Jesus, to find my sufficiency in him. Because if I don't actually do those things, then what good are my words? I know God. What, what good do those words do? How much confidence can I have in claiming a relationship with God if my life actually says otherwise? The book of 1 John is very interested in this question of the confidence that we have in our relationship with God. We just started looking through First uh, John last week. And John is interested in this question of what does it really truly mean to know God, to have an intimate relationship with him, to abide with him. And how can I be sure that that's actually true of me? That's one of the questions he wants us to ask. How do I know if I'm just pretending, for instance? Or how do I know that if I, how do I know whether I might have missed out on something? You know, in, in the, the church John's writing to, there were all sorts of uh, uh, folks who had left that church saying things like, Jesus isn't enough, uh, that, that you need something more or something other. How do I know that I haven't missed out on something? How can I have confidence in my relationship with God? What does it mean to truly have an intimate relationship with him? Well, John's going to be answering those questions in several ways throughout uh, his three letters that we're going to be looking at. But this morning, he invites us to kind of step back and examine the connection between what we say and what we do. That's one of the tests he wants us to ask our own hearts what we claim about our relationship with God and how we actually live, and the standard against which he wants us to measure that is the holiness of God himself. So again, look with me at 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and let's think about what it means here to walk in the light, to walk in the light. Well, John begins in verse 5 by declaring the message that he has received from Jesus. If you were with us last week or if you've had a chance to read the first four verses of his book, uh, you'll know that he's picking up here where he left off in that first section. Uh, Last week, uh, in those opening verses, John sought to anchor our experience of knowing God uh, and therefore uh, our fellowship with the people of God. You can't have one without the other. John sought to anchor those things firmly in the gospel message that the apostles preached. Think of the message of the gospel of John, uh, that uh, Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's the message he wanted to anchor their pursuit of fellowship in the truth of the gospel. In other words, that intimacy with God is Christ-centered. You cannot truly and intimately know God unless you know him through the person of Jesus Christ. So that's how he got started. And now in verse 5, he gets a little more specific about the precise message that the apostles saw and heard from Jesus. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, light is, is not an uncommon metaphor to describe God in Scripture. But what does John mean by that metaphor here? I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is simply to think of the sun, you know, our source of light. You know, all of us grew up with our parents telling us what about the sun? Don't look straight at it. And how many of us obeyed those? You know, everybody went through that experience of out of curiosity or whatever. We still did it anyway, right? We stared at the sun. And what, what happens when you do that? You find that the sun is so powerful so brilliant, so magnificent, that you can't take the whole thing in. It's, it will blind you if you stare at it too long. And if you were to try and get too close to it, you know, if you built your backyard spaceship or whatever and headed toward the sun, it would burn you up in route. Well, that's a great metaphor to think about the infinite power and perfect holiness of God. His majesty is so brilliant, it's impossible to take it in. His power is so immense. He is so perfect in his holiness that anything unholy is burnt up upon entry into his presence. That's the kind of picture we see in passages like Psalm 104, verses 1 through 2. says of God, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. First Timothy six sixteen speaks of God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is perfect in his holiness. In him there is no darkness at all. He's so holy he cannot look upon sin or allow it into his presence. Habakkuk one three tells us that he is of Purer, purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. As, as one commenter, commentator sums it up, verse 5 is John's way of saying, very simply, God is good and evil can have no place beside him. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet this same sun that, that's above us, that's too brilliant to look directly at, is at the same time what enables us to see everything else. And I think that's also part of the picture of God and his holiness and light here in this uh, book. The light of God's holiness not only uh, displays his flawless perfection, it also exposes what is dark. You know, if you have little ones, um, then you know the peril of trying to navigate their room at night after you've tucked them in bed uh, you know, even if you think the toys have been put away, invariably, you know, you're trying to put laundry away or something as the kids are down. And, and it's almost like you, you're kind of in enemy territory. You're doing the army crawl not to set off an alarm with some toy that goes loud and wakes up the kids. And, you know, if you were to turn on the light, obviously your kids would wake up, which is why we risk our lives every night. But if you were to do that, you would know where to walk, right? You'd be able to avoid the obstacles because the light shows us what is there. It shows us how to walk, where to go. It exposes danger, which is why those who love the darkness, who love what is secret and not exposed, want to remain 
in it. Very rarely will a thief break into your home in midday when you're awake, sitting on the couch. They wait for night. Uh, that's the picture we see in John three nineteen through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And so to say here that kind of the foundation stone of John's argument that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, to say that is to say that he is both brilliant in his majesty and holiness and that his holiness exposes all that is unholy in the world around us. And if we're going to talk about a genuine relationship with God, if we're going to talk about what it means to truly be intimately in communion with the God of heaven, to seek that relationship, this is where we have to start with the fact that God is holy. We have to begin with the holiness of God. So often we want to start with what we're looking for in the relationship, as though we're putting out you know, an ad, you know, wanted, some God who's going to answer my prayers when I need them and take care of me and otherwise not bug me. We have to start with God's holiness, with who he truly is. He is above us and over us and unlike us in nature and character and power. He is perfect in righteousness and glory and mercy and love and compassion. He is holy in all of his attributes. And if that's true of God, if that's who he really is, then that has serious implications for what it looks like to have relationship with this God. And John offers five of those implications in verses 6 through 10. So if you look again at your Bibles, at, at chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, I want first to kind of uh, notice something of the structure of how John has arranged his point here, his argument. And you'll notice there that there are five statements, five if-then statements that he's making. He's unpacking the implications of what does it mean to have relationship with the Holy God. And here's how you can kind of navigate that. Five if-then statements. If this is true, then this is the reality. The first, middle, and last of those statements, verses 6, 8, and 10, all focus on what we say. And they're all negative. If we say we have fellowship with God, but walk in the darkness. If we say we have no sin. If we say we have not sinned. And so the problem in each case is that there's a difference between what we say and what's actually true of our lives. And the results get increasingly worse. We lie and do not practice the truth. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then finally, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. But the second and the fourth statement, verses 7 and 9, are both positive. And instead of focusing on what we say, those focus on what we do. If we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, and likewise, the results are both positive, very positive. We have 
the forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God. We have confidence in our relationship with him. And so John is laying out the implications of communing with a holy God. Intimacy with God is a holy experience. And let's start by looking at verses 6 and 7, the first kind of set. And those two verses kind of work together to discuss the necessity of obedience in an intimate relationship with God. The necessity of obedience. So verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So notice there how both of those verses talk about fellowship. Both of them use the imagery of light and dark. And both of them discuss how we walk, whether in the dark or in the light. And he's not talking about whether we pursue a pre-dawn stroll or a mid-morning one, walking in the darkness or walking in the light. That's not the imagery here. To walk in Scripture is a common metaphor for how we live, how we conduct our lives, what we do day in and day out. And as verse 5 informs us, walking in the light is ultimately about walking in God's light, walking in the light of His holiness according to His word, in relationship with his son, through faith in the power of his spirit. And the problem, again in verse 6, is that some claim to have fellowship with God. They claim to know him, to have an intimate relationship with him, while actually walking in the dark. What they say and what they do doesn't line up. It's inconsistent. Which if true, and if true of of me or, or of us, reveals something about who we really are, doesn't it? The logic is pretty simple. Uh, I read in the news that that GE is moving to uh, their headquarters to Boston soon. If somebody claims to to work for GE, but never does any work, never interacts with any supervisors there, uh, never actually shows up for anything, then either they're lying or they're not going to be working there much longer. You can't claim to be an employee of GE and not live like one. That's basic, very simple, non-controversial logic. But for some reason, when we apply that logic to Christianity, we find ourselves very tempted to have no problem claiming a relationship with God, but living as though we've never actually met. It's a common temptation in the church. We have this amazing temptation, the ability to compartmentalize our lives. In other words, to section them off. So here's one part of my life, that's the God portion. And, uh, you know, that's what I do Sunday morning, or, you know, what I do before a meal, or what I do when I tuck my kids into bed. But, but that's this section of my life, and it doesn't necessarily have much to do with the other sections. So when it comes to politics, you know, My comments can be as vitriolic as the worst thing you read in a comment section on a news blog. Uh, When it comes to the shows that we watch or the language we use, when it comes to what we do when no one else is watching, there's no discernible difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, between the church and the world. 
We wouldn't expect GE to pay someone who claims to work for them but never shows up. But for some reason, we expect God to accept anyone who says they belong to him when they never actually live like it. We may even want intimacy with God. We may want fellowship with God, but we want it on our own terms. But John is telling us God is a holy God. He is a holy God. If we say we have fellowship with him but walk in the darkness, we're committing two offenses. First, we're lying about our relationship with God. We have either broken fellowship with him or never actually had it to begin with. One of those two things has to be true. And second, we're not practicing the truth. We're walking in falsehood and disobedience. In contrast to that, verse 7 tells us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. The reality of intimacy with God, of knowing God, abiding with God, is that intimacy with God is holy. Because God is holy, our relationship with him is called to be holy. It requires obedience. Light has no fellowship with darkness. I think of Psalm 15. puts it this way. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who may enter into God's presence and commune with him? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. True intimacy with God is holy. And it's interesting that the result of that in verse 7 is not just that we have fellowship with God, it's that we have fellowship with one another. Now, if you notice that, you know, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The holiness shows that we not only belong to God, but that we also have relationship with his people. And it's, it's kind of interesting because sometimes in our quest for authenticity in relationships, that's kind of one of the buzzwords that we'll throw around. I want authentic relationships. And in some circles, basically what that means is let's not get too crazy about holiness here. We've kind of played the performance game and the legalism game, and we're done with that, and we're afraid of going back there. And so we're going to kind of ride the edge of holiness because we're authentic. But an authentic relationship with God is one that cares about holiness. An authentic relationship with God's people is one that cares about holiness. Now, of course... One of the questions that you should have been asking in your heart the last four or five minutes is, what about grace? What about the fact that I'm not that holy? I don't have it all together. That's a good question, and that's where John's going to take us. But what we can't do with grace is this. We can't say that because God is a God of grace, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. Walking in holiness is not contrary to grace. It is the evidence that we have received grace. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul Tripp clarifies, uh, obedience is not what gets you grace. Obedience is the evidence that grace has gotten you. 
Obedience is the evidence that grace has gotten you. God saves us not just from sin, but for a righteous relationship with him. And walking in holiness is a necessary part of that genuine relationship with God. You can't claim to have relationship with God who is light while still living in the dark and not caring about it. Now, again, that that raises lots of questions for us. Uh, Does this mean, if John is saying this, does this mean then that I'm supposed to somehow separate myself from the darkness around me in order to kind of have this relationship with God? That I've got to check out from the world and just kind of get away from all the pollution around me like some sort of monastic type mindset. Um, I don't think that's what John's saying. Uh, I don't think that fits well with the rest of Scripture And even if we could remove ourselves from the world, it's a lot harder to remove the world from our hearts. Cloistering yourself off doesn't get rid of the sin within. Okay, so does this mean that God is expecting me to become perfect and never sin again in order to commune intimately with him? If holiness is such a big deal for having a genuine relationship with God, uh, do I have to, like, never mess up again? Some people in John's day were actually teaching that message. But as we'll see in verses 8 through 10, uh, that would be to commit an equally dangerous error. Intimate relationship with God requires holiness. It requires obedience. But because we are not perfect, it also requires confession of sin. And that's what John emphasizes in verses 8 through 10. So verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, these verses, both of them start by focusing on what people say. We have no sin. We have not sinned. And as with before, there's a vast chasm between what is said and what's actually true. And the result of that is not pretty. You know, to say that we are without sin is first to deceive ourselves, to lie to ourselves. And to say that we have not sinned is not only to deceive ourselves, it's to call God a liar. Because he clearly tells us elsewhere in Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And yet there's this temptation. If holiness is such a big deal, what do I do with my sin? How do I manage it or hide it or or minimize it? There's there's a temptation to deny sin in several ways. Uh, One way is to think that because we have Christ, we're no longer prone to sin. Uh, that we can walk henceforth in sinless perfection. Again, that's probably what the false teachers uh, that John is referring to later in the letter, that's probably what they believed and were teaching. And rather ironically, there are some today who on the basis of 1 John continue to teach that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that once they, uh, that in Christ they've achieved some sort of sinless perfection, that they no longer sin. I remember groups who, who would believe and teach that coming and, and uh, preaching on campus at the University of Nebraska when I was there. Uh, a friend of mine was taken in by a group like this in Japan. 
After all, you know, John says later in chapter three, verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But if we're going to read what John's saying there as though he's saying that we will never sin again, to do that is to pit John against himself in the very same letter and pretty much to ignore the rest of Scripture. John is serious about holiness. We should be bothered by sin in our lives. But he also knows what's in our hearts. You cannot claim to be without sin without deceiving yourself or calling God a liar. There's a a great, though most likely apocryphal story about C.H. Spurgeon, a great British preacher, uh, who was uh, entertaining a man who had claimed that he was completely free of sin in Christ, that he didn't sin anymore. So Spurgeon invited the man over for dinner and listened over the meal as the man repeated his sinless claim over and over. And suddenly Spurgeon reached up for a glass of water and threw it in the man's face. The visitor, caught by surprise, he was very angry and said some very angry things that Christians should not say. And Spurgeon said quietly, ah, you see, the old man within is not dead. He had simply fainted and I revived him with a glass of water. (laughs) So, So one way to deny our sin is to maximize our holiness, to to make ourselves out to be more righteous than we actually are. The other way to do it, the way that's probably more of a temptation for most of us, is to minimize the sinfulness of our sin, to make it not as bad as it really is. And again, I think that that is, is probably where most of us find ourselves struggling more often today to kind of, you know, uh, because I want to do something to kind of rationalize and justify it so that I can do it and not feel as guilty about it. Uh, Or we approach our relationship with God, you know, as though he's basically there to make me happy. And so I don't worry about the commands. I don't worry about the requirements. I simply look about, look at what, what can God do for me? Or I think about, you know, what, what people will say if they think, if they, you know, see what, that I actually agree with the Bible on certain things being sinful, and I need to revise those to be more culturally accepted. After all, we're under grace, right? So, so what's the big deal with downplaying sin? We're under grace, not the law. Well, the big deal is that the sin that we minimize and downplay cost Christ his life in our place. The big deal is that God is a big deal. And to treat sin lightly is to treat God lightly. If we take seriously the holiness of God, that God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, we cannot minimize our sin or maximize our righteousness as though we're better than we really are. So what can we do then? Holiness is necessary, but I'm not very holy. What can we do? Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
God is not asking us to pretend that we're not as sinful or to revise our definitions of sin. He's asking us to own it, to own our sinfulness, to own our brokenness, our failures, our rebellion, to confess it, to acknowledge it before him, our failures and our offenses, that none of us have arrived, that none of us have it all together, and then find in him the forgiveness and cleansing that comes only from Christ's blood. Intimacy with God requires obedience, but it also requires confession of sin. Doug O'Donnell explains in his commentary that confession can be public and private, individual and corporate. You see all of those examples. We can confess personal sins and even the sins of others. Daniel 9, confessing the sins of the nation. Confession can be made to others, to those offended, and always to God. And the confession that John speaks of in 1 John 1, 9 is to God. Uh, now, for some of us, depending on our, our church tradition or background, we hear the word making of confessing our sins, and there's a certain expectation of what that looks like, that I need to go to a, a priest or some uh, pastor or something and, and confess my sins to that person. That's not what John's talking about there. There can be value in those kinds of things. There can be value in confessing our sins to one another. There is value in it. For the sake of accountability or for the sake of reconciliation, if I've sinned against someone, to confess that. But we confess our sins to one another, not because we don't have access to God, but in order for that accountability, for that intimacy, for that reconciliation. Because there's only one priest in the New Testament. And it's Jesus. He's the great high priest. His blood is what cleanses our sin and gives us access to bring our confession directly to God. Confession is not a magic incantation or ritual that in and of itself is efficacious. The effectiveness of confessing our sin lies not in me or the person I'm talking to, but in the faithfulness and righteousness of God, whose son shed his blood for this very purpose, to forgive us of our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's two things happening in that promise there. The first is the forgiveness of our sins. God takes the debt that we owe him because of our rebellion against him, and he cancels it. Like walking into a bank where you owe thousands upon thousands of dollars, and the lender just draws a line through it. It's gone. The debt has been paid. And that's what Jesus paid on the cross in our place. So he forgives the sin. But the second picture here, the second promise, is that we are cleansed that the defilement that we feel in our hearts, the stain that we carry with us, the guilt, the shame, Jesus takes that and washes it away by his blood. We're not just forgiven, we're clean. We don't have to walk in guilt and shame over what we've done 
Jesus has paid for it and he has washed it all away. It's part of the picture of baptism that we celebrated this morning. This is what God does when we first place our faith in Christ and it's what he continues to do as we abide in him and walk with him to make us clean. And so the question that I think maybe is underneath some of our hesitancy in in terms of walking in the light versus the darkness is, do I really believe that the blood of Jesus is enough to cleanse me of my sin? Do I really believe that he's worth that and that his blood actually does cover it? Or do I have to keep it in the dark, doing what I shouldn't be doing because I'm afraid? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Intimacy with God is holy. It requires obedience to God and it requires confession of sin. If we're going to take seriously both the holiness of God and the sufficiency of his grace through Christ. So this morning as we uh, close I want to give all of us a moment to pray quietly before the Lord. To bring our sins before him in our sins before him in confession. Uh, There may be some of us who need to confess sins, not only to God, but to others that we have wronged. God lays that on your heart. I encourage you to listen to that. Uh, Maybe some of us need to make a phone call when we get home today. Intimacy with God is worth it. Doug O'Donnell reminds us, if we are to walk in the light as we're called to do, the first step is recognizing the darkness within. That's the first step. And so take a moment to pray and ask God to reveal your heart, to search your heart, to reveal to yourself anything that you need to bring before him in confession. And I'll close us in a few minutes. Gracious Father, You are holy, and we are sinful. You are strong, and we are weak. You are ever in the light, and we walk in darkness. Give us your spirit, that in repentance and trust, we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Enlighten our minds Purify our hearts. Renew our wills. And may we give ourselves wholly to you. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.